Amen. Well, it's that time of year where everybody says to me, it's your busy period, vicar. Uh, only because they don't think I do anything else the rest of the year, so it's kind of like, but I'll take it as heartfelt thanks for my uh, concern for my well-being. And um, we love the Christmas story, and we, we love its unchanging familiarity. Um, this can be a challenge. After 30 years of uh, preaching every Christmas, you've said everything there is to say about shepherds and angels and mangers and wise men. You said everything there is to say about the census being taken in Bethlehem, and you've sung every single carol you can possibly remember, and quite a few that you've forgotten uh, over the years. What more can you say? I went online to uh, people I listen uh, to their sermons. I listened to one chap who I normally really enjoy listening to his messages. He's a pastor in, in America. <laughs> he was saying about how some scholars thought that it was l- possible that the manger, uh, that mangers were often made out of gopher wood, and that that is the same wood that Noah used to build the ark with. And isn't that amazing that the, the ark that saved God's people back then was made out of the same wood that is the cradle of salvation today. And as I was listening to him, I was thinking, I really feel for you, mate. You are dredging, aren't you here? I mean, really, you've run out of everything else there is to say about anything to do with Christmas. You're dredging around for arts made out of gopher wood. It's like, I feel for you. I feel for you. But the fact is, this Christmas story enchants us. And it does. I was at, um, we were at the White Bear, some of us singing carols on um, Wednesday evening. Some of our worship team were there. And you could see all around the, the restaurant, being in the festive kind of mood. Um, but people in a, in a blank moment, while they were eating or drinking, they were mouthing the words of the carols. They know them. They know what they are. There's no word sheets, there's no carol sheets, but you see them singing it. It's like they're, they're kind of into it. Why is this story so loved by so many of us and so many generations of people and we don't want it to change we don't mess around with the christmas story because it is what it is how did christmas survive being banned by oliver cromwell in the 1640s what made the troops in ypres in um 100 years ago uh, when they heard on christmas eve that carol silent night what made them lay down their weapons and call a christmas day truce Why does the story of Christmas, even if just for two weeks, capture everybody's imaginations all over again? And I'd like to suggest that it's because this story is still happening now. All the best stories are stories that resonate with us. Even though they might be ancient, they resonate with us today. You think, yeah, I get that. I know what she felt. I know why he did that. I get that. That's how I would feel. That's what I would wish could happen. That's the longing of my heart. That's the dream that I have. And when we read any ancient story, its power is because it kind of reminds me that this is my story too. And that is so true of Christmas. We don't sing, unto them a child was born. We sing, Unto us a child is born, because it's happening to us and for us now, just as it happened for them thousands of years ago. It's this story, it's happening now. 
And what the Christmas story shows us about God and how Jesus came into the world is still true today. Somebody once said, this Christmas festival calls from its ancient past into our present day. It resonates with us. And I just want to share with you, quite quickly, five reasons why I love the Christmas story. Is that okay? I mean, what else do you say at Christmas? Why I love the Christmas story. Why it's the same and why it doesn't need to change. And why we're not going to talk about gopher wood or Noah's Ark. Five reasons I love Christmas. Number one, there was no room in the inn. When Mary and Joseph came to Bethlehem, there was no room for them to stay. Gordon and I have been exchanging um, some of our favorite um, nativity play uh, quotes. Uh, you collect them over the years of different school nativity plays that you've attended, church nativity plays, and they do throw up some quite funny uh, examples. My favorite is the little boy who so desperately wanted to be Joseph, but he actually got the part of the innkeeper who only has two words to say in the entire performance, which is no room. Um, but he devised a cunning plan to bring the entire nativity to a halt. Mary and Joseph, uh, tired after their journey, knock on the door. Uh, he flings the door open and Joseph says, have you got any room? And he says, yes, we've got loads of room. Come on in. Um, and of course, the whole thing falls at that point because that's not the story. And we love that. I love that there was no room in the inn. Why? Because I'm cruel and unkind? No. No, because it reminds me how the bustling civic commercial center of Bethlehem squeezes out the most important event in history. Don't you want to shout at the whole town and say, don't you realize what's happening here? Do you have a clue what's going to happen tonight? Do you not understand how important and significant this little town is going to be? You have no idea, do you? You want to say it, because I know how significant it is, but they don't. We love stories where we know the answer, but you don't. We love that. I love the fact that there was no room for him because it's my story too. It's our story, isn't it? I get so caught up with all that there is to do that there's often no room for him in my thinking and in my life. I love the Christmas story because it reminds me that I have to make room for him. Because it's so easy to let the bustle and the hassle of, you know what, running a church, let's, let's get it out there. You know, my busy period. That can sometimes be quite difficult, but actually the challenge is this is my story. I have to make room for him. You have to make room for him. That's why I love this story, because it's my story. A well-known uh, theologian and um, so, uh, social writer wrote this, the modern person has been pressed so hard towards useful work and rational calculation that they have almost all but forgotten the joy of ecstatic celebration. I love this story. There's no room for Jesus because so often that's true and it's my story and it reminds me to make room for him where meek souls will receive him still the dear Christ enters in. And then I love the story for the second reason. Jesus is born in a stable, not a fine palace. Um, and we love that. We love that he was born in a stable with a straw. Maybe there were animals there, maybe there weren't, we don't know, but we love that. Um, that, 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 that he didn't have to go to some fine uh, place. Um, 
Why do I love that? I love it because he's not waiting for me to clean everything up before he comes, but he's willing to come into your mess. He's willing to come into a heart that's all screwed up and made bad decisions and uh, basically he's made a mess of life. He doesn't wait till you sort it all out. He's willing to be born right into the mess, right into the dirt of, of everyday life. He comes. I love that. That's what we do pretty much all year, isn't it? Ordinary people, often we've made mistakes. I've made mistakes, said stupid things, done things, and yet Jesus doesn't hold back. He doesn't refuse to come. No, he says, oh, I'll come. If you want me to come, I'll come right into the mess, right into the screw-up. You just invite me. I'm not afraid. I'm not proud. I'll go wherever I'm wanted. I love the story, don't you? I love that he's born in a stable. I love that he didn't wait for everything to be all right, for me to put everything that I could right before he comes. He comes to ordinary, broken, and shabby lives like ours and makes something beautiful out of them. And we see that happening in our church week by week. We've had some fantastic testimonies recently of people who, who that's been their story. Uh, an ordinary, shabby life, and God has come and is starting to make something beautiful. Jesus born in a stable. Number three, reason I love Christmas story. The shepherds saw and heard the angels sing. The shepherds, these are the bottom of the social pack. We might not realize that today, but in Jesus' day, shepherds were considered the lowest of the low. If you did the job of a shepherd, it's because you couldn't do anything else. And Jesus actually uh, almost certainly tells a, uh, he uses that. He tells a story about shepherds. He uses that quite a bit, actually, in his uh, parables and teaching. Um, On one occasion, Jesus says there's this shepherd, uh, and everyone's gathered around him and thinking, oh yeah, it's a shepherd, go on. It's a shepherd joke, right? Shepherd jokes. This is a shepherd. Yeah, go on, Jesus, tell us the story. Well, is this shepherd? He's got a hundred sheep. Yeah, a hundred sheep, right? So he says, so what this shepherd does is, yeah, go on, tell us. What does he do? What does he do? Well, he, he, one of them, Luke, goes missing. He's lost one. He's only got 99 now. He's like, yeah, yeah, go on. What happens next? Go on, tell us. What happens next? Well, he leaves the 99 to fend for themselves and goes off to find the one that's lost. And everybody collapses around laughing because in those days, that's a very funny joke. And then Jesus says, no, no, that's not the punchline. Here's the punchline. That's what God's like. Why God does that. To find you. He'd leave everybody else just to find you. And I love that Jesus appears, uh, his glory and his coming is, is first um, given to the shepherds. Because if there was a God in heaven who loved us, it seems so right that he would go to everybody regardless of their status or how important they were. It would be important that God who loved everybody would be seen to go to the lowest of the low. I love the story because it reminds me that God's here for everyone, not just for, for Christians. God loves the world. He loves people in, walking up and down Tunbridge Wells High Street who never go to church. He loves them as much as he loves me. And I love that about the Christmas story. The shepherds heard the angels and the angels found themselves um, that, that in the sky. I don't know if they had any idea what the response of the shepherds was going to be, but they, they, just, they just announced and celebrated this coming of Jesus and the shepherds saw it. And you know, we often think that the angels sent them to Bethlehem, but they didn't. They just said, if you had a care to go, you will find him lying in a manger. And the shepherds said, 
let's go and see if this is true. Let's see if we can find that baby that they've just been singing about. Let's go and see if we can find that. The shepherds, I love that about the story. I love it that God doesn't crash into your life or mine. He doesn't force his way in. He doesn't say, now you must serve me, now you must love me. He never cajoles, he never forces, he never bullies. His glory appears, he just says, would you like that? Do you like my glory? Do you like the angelic song? Does it captivate you? Does it, does it draw you into his presence? Well then go and find him. He doesn't crash in, he doesn't force his way in. I love the Christmas story. It reminds me of how God comes to me all the time. He comes gently, he comes offering with massive signs to lead me to him, but he didn't force. It's up to me to go. I love that, reminds me of how, how it is for me all through the year. That's how God comes to you. And sometimes we, we wish that God would come crashing in and say something and do something just to show us that he's really there. But you know what? He won't. Very often he won't because God hides. That's his nature. He hides himself because he doesn't want to crash into your life and mine, giving us no chance, giving us no opportunity to say, no, I don't want that. Love has to be wanted. It has to be cherished. You, you can't force your love on someone else. Boys, when I was a teenager, I tried to do that often enough. Uh, that doesn't work, does it? Forcing your love on someone else. And God has this difficult thing, doesn't he? It's a really difficult job to do because he desperately wants us to know his love, but he doesn't want to crush us. He wants our response to him to be a freely given, freely loved response. So, so often though he might want to, he holds back. And there's just enough to seek for if you're willing to look for it, but he won't crash into you because that's how God comes. You may know the story. We tell the story on Alpha of um, Leo Tolstoy, uh, the writer, um, and wrote some of the great novels uh, that people still read today. Um, and uh, I haven't actually read um, War and Peace, uh, but has anyone read it here? Oh, yeah, the smart ones. Uh, <laughs> the intellectuals. Um, that's great. Well, in 1879, at the end of his life, Leo Tolstoy wrote another book, little-known book, called A Confession. He rejected Christianity as a child, and in his book, he talks about how that happened and why he completely rejected the Christian message. Even though he had been brought that up, his grandmother and his mother had been followers of Jesus, but he rejected it and rejected their message. He entered the world of high Moscow society. Uh, he sought ambitious, a very ambitious man. He sought ambitious for money. He became quite wealthy through his published books. He was, um, he was just really ambitious for a hedonistic lifestyle. I mean, he would gamble the night away. He, he, he spent millions in today's money on gambling, on prostitution. Um, I mean, he, he just wasn't the kind of a nice guy. And yet he was this incredible writer, and everyone loved what he wrote. He became ambitious for money, inherited his uh, parents' estate, um, but none of this gave him that sense of satisfaction. And from time to time, he would write about how dissatisfied he felt, despite having everything that anyone else would normally want. He became ambitious for his family. He married in 1862. He had 13 children. And he wrote in his diary that not one of them brought him joy. Isn't that sad? One question brought him to the verge of suicide. Is there any meaning to my life which will not be annihilated by the inevitability of death which awaits me? He wrote all this in his book, The Confession. And then he spent the remaining years of his life, 
he went back, he, he rejected the high society of Moscow, and he lived in a small village among the shepherds. And he writes in his book, The Confession, that he rediscovered among the shepherds the simple faith of a peasant people. And through their childlike trust in Jesus, he found at last the contentment that he'd been looking for all his life. Not revealed to the highbrow intellectuals or even the, the high-status people of the Moscow high society. He found a simple faith amongst ordinary simple people. I love this Bellot story. I love the, the way that it was the shepherds. I love the way that it's for everyone. Number four, I love this about the Christmas story. The wise men were led to Jesus by a star. The wise men spent much time seeking out the signs that would lead them to Jesus. They examined the ancient texts, and I love that. I love that bit of the story how they, they know that there's a king going to be born and they travel all that distance to get there. The idea that God, who by nature hides himself, yet wants to be found, gives you enough signs of his presence if you're willing to look for them. And then I realize that that's, that's our story, isn't it? That's our story too. Somehow, through incidents, coincidence, and accident, through happenings, through things that we... God was beckoning us to himself. And every one of you's got a story of how God led you. How what other people might think was just coincidence. How other people would say, well, it just happened. Happens to everyone, doesn't it? But you know that God was after you. You know that it was a sign from him. Other people saw the star. The wise men knew that a savior was born. I love that about the story. Star of wonder, star of night, guide us to the perfect light. And then finally, um, Herod is deeply threatened by the birth of Jesus. Um, these wise men are not simply searching for a mere uh, human successor. They're searching for the king over all kings. Herod knows this, and he is deeply threatened. And I love that bit of the story. I'll tell you for why. You see, ultimately we'll always be disappointed with earthly rulers. It's not their fault. We were not made, humankind was not made to hold the government of the world on our shoulders. That's why we're to pray for kings and all those in authority. Because they're doing a job that we're really not equipped to do, but they have to do it. And of course, they're going to sometimes make a mess of it, and almost every leader you ever have will end up being disappointed. Most leaders end up falling when people are disappointed with them, when all the hopes and dreams they placed upon them can no longer be delivered. It's been like that all through history. And I love this bit of the story because it reminds me of that truth. It reminds me to pray for those who've got a really hard job to have to do. Because actually, there's only one life that has ever been quick, equipped and fit to hold the government upon their shoulders, and that's Jesus Christ. And all others are mere shadows and imitations of him. They're bound to fail. And I love this story because it reminds me not to put ultimately my trust in earthly or worldly rulers. Maybe some of us are still trying to come to terms with the result of a general election to say, well, you know what, whether you're happy about it or whether you're sad about it, don't put too much trust in any of it. Pray for our leaders and put your trust 
in the one on whose shoulders the government rests securely, who is equipped and able to handle the affairs of your life and of our world. But there's another reason that this story resonates with me. Because sometimes I am deeply threatened by the demands that this king I know has the right to make on my life. Sometimes that, that brings me up short too. Because I know that if he's the king of kings, there's nothing he can't ask. There's nothing that I can withhold. I haven't got a right to say, no, you can't have that bit, or no, I'm not going to do this, or I don't want you to do that with my life. I know that if he's really the king of all kings, then there's nothing I can withhold. And that scares me, even now, the reality of that, the knowledge of that. And sometimes I find myself in a season where I'm, I'm drawn away from God a little bit because I'm, I'm fearful of what he might be asking of me. Yeah, I, I know this story really well. Because I want to sort of say, ah, oh, nasty, bad, wicked, de demonic Herod, threatened by Jesus. My friends, everyone's threatened by Jesus. Everyone's threatened by Jesus. Because of who he is, because of what he's got the right to demand, because of who he is. What do you do? You do what the shepherds did, you do what the wise men did. You go and you kneel at the feet of the meek and the mild Jesus, and somehow, when you get up and go away, you'll go away rejoicing. I don't know how that happens, but it does every time. The shepherds went terrified, remember? They weren't ecstatic, they were terrified. They went, found Jesus. We don't exactly know what happened, um, but they went and found Jesus. They went and found Mary. They stayed some time there, and then all Luke tells us is, and they left and went on their way full of joy. Friends, the demands of Jesus should cause us to fear. It's natural. It's grace that taught my heart to fear. And then you go to Jesus and you worship afresh the Son of God and your fears are relieved and your heart is full of joy and I wonder why I ever feared in the first place because what could be better than living my life in the fullness of the life he's come to bring? I love the Christmas story. I love all of it. I love all the truth that it's showing me. This is my story. This is our story. Don't you see yourself in the shepherds? See yourself in the, in the kings who sought for it? Don't you see yourself in the song of the angels? Don't you see yourself kneeling at the foot of Jesus saying you can have it all? Ah, oh, this is our story. That's why we love it. That's why we love it so much. This is our story. This is our song. Before we moved to Tunbridge Wells, we lived in central London in uh, West Kensington. Our parish, the parish that I was the vicar of, had been the, um, the centre, really the gathering point for the pre-Raphaelite movement. Just round the corner from our vicarage, uh, the founder of the pre-Raphaelite movement, Holman Hunt, which was a collection of artists and poets uh, with a particular take on life. Um, and they had um, lived in, in, in my parish. T.S. Eliot was one of the later pre-Raphaelite um, poets. He had been a church warden in my church um, before my time, obviously. Duh. Uh, and so we had this long history at St. Barnabas Church in Kensington and just around the corner from us, say Holman Hunt blue plaque on the wall, he lived there and while he was there, just round from where we used to live, he painted this picture. 
Um, it's called The Light of Christ. It's one of the most famous pictures that he painted. He painted lots, but this is the best known. You may have seen it. He actually painted it four or five times. One of them is in the Bodleian Library, um, and uh, one still hangs in the house that you can, you can go around on certain days. And you may know the story that Holman Hunt painted this picture, and it's Christ, the light of the world, holding a lantern, and he's standing outside an overgrown wooden oak door. And he's clearly knocking on the door as he looks towards us. And people, uh, it wasn't well received by the art world. They criticized it when it was first produced, and uh, they really rubbished it and felt the pre-Raphaelites had nothing new to offer. And one of the critics pointed out that there's no door handle on the door, so how could he get in anyway? And you may remember that Holman Hunt uh, replied, there's no door handle on the outside because it's uh, on the inside. And only the person on the inside can open the door to Jesus Christ, who nonetheless knocks on the door. And it's based on the last ever recorded words of Jesus from Revelation chapter 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door of their heart, I will come in. This Christmas, as every Christmas, as always, God is searching the world to see where there might be room, to see where ordinary people might be responding to his beckoning. God is looking for people whose lives are messed up, but who are willing to let him come and begin to make something beautiful out of them. He's looking to see who's willing to let him be the king and the Lord of their lives. He stands at the door and he knocks. And we're tempted to think, yeah, well, I made that decision years ago. I let him in years ago. I let him in when I was 15. I let him in when I was 24. Well, do it again. Do it again. Oh, come to us. Abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Father, we love this story. It's our story. I see it played out in my life over and over again. I love this message. I love what it shows me about you, Father. I love what it shows me about your kindness. I love that it shows me how fearful I might feel sometimes at your coming, but how you have come to relieve my fears and to fill me with joy. Lord, I love it that you want me to make room for you, that you don't barge in or crash in, but you wait for me to say, I want you. I want you so badly. I want you to come. I need you to come. God, I love that. I love this. I love the fact that we can hear the angels and the song of heaven if we just but listen and get still enough. I love that you promised that you'd guide us and lead us. There'd be signs to follow if we just had our eyes open to see them. Lord, I love this. This is my story. This is why we're here. Heavenly Father, will you open the truth of this Christmas to us afresh, that we might worship you as if it was the first time we'd ever opened the door. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.